and welcome to this panel, AA and the Medical Profession. Shall we open with a moment of silence, and during this meditation time, shall we think of the, all of the AA recoveries for the past 30 years with gratitude. Would you join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There may be some people here who are not familiar with our tradition of personal anonymity at the public level. If so, we respectfully ask that no AA member or speaker be identified by full name in published or broadcast reports of our meetings. The assurance of anonymity is essential to our efforts to help other alcoholics, and our tradition of anonymity reminds us that AA principles come before personalities. It is my privilege this afternoon to introduce to you the chairman of this, me of this meeting, a long-time friend of AA, who was elected to the General Service Board in April 1957. He was the first psychiatrist to recognize the work of Alcoholics Anonymous and to use AA principles in his own practice. In the early days when AA was little known, he was instrumental in having Bill, our co-founder, speak before the neurology and uh, psychiatry section of the Medical Society of the State of New York and the American Psychi Psychiatric Association. He has written many inspiring articles, among them, The Ego Factors in the Surrender of Alcoholism. I would like you all to meet this afternoon Dr. Harry Thibault. Thank you very much. This is my third appearance before a convention of AA. Ten years ago at St. Louis, the title of the convention was AA Comes of Age. Now, ten years later, we are going to discuss the headaches of growing up, namely, taking on responsibility. This is a subject which is close to the medical mind. We are a service profession. We are responsible for the treatment of the sick. This means caring for the individual, whether the illness be of the body, mind, or spirit. The medical man is often called upon first when any one of these three areas becomes ill. Medicine now knows that man cannot be divided into three parts. He may have three aspects, but when he is ill, we have to treat the individual. As a part, over a hundred years ago, medicine began to advance in the physical realms. About 50 years ago, medicine made some advances on the psychiatric side. Thirty years ago, AA came along and helped us to advance on the spiritual side. As one therapist to another therapist, all of you out there, I welcome you to the healing professions. <laughs> I might add a little cattily that I welcome you to all the 2 a.m. telephone calls. <laughs> this meeting gives the medical profession a chance to speak to you as, AA, as an AA audience. What the speakers have to say will be their own message. I know they all share with me a deep feeling of gratitude that AA is available to help us fulfill our responsibilities for the treatment of the alcoholic who is a person who is indeed sick in body, mind, and spirit. 
The first speaker this afternoon is a psychiatrist. His name is Dr. Alexander S. McPherson, and he comes from Montreal. He's a medical specialist in psychiatry. Queen Mary Veterans Hospital there is in charge of the outdoor clinic for alcoholics, the Royal Victoria Hospital, and lecturer in the psychology department of medicine of McGill University. He is also chairman of the Subcommittee on Rehabilitation of the Advisory Committee on Mental Health, the Department of National Health and Welfare, and has written several articles for, on mental hygiene for professional journals. It is my very happy privilege to introduce to you Dr. McPherson. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's hard for me to express my feelings at this moment. Uh, I never thought I'd be on a panel with uh, such distinguished men as uh, Dr. Thibault and uh, Dr. Block. Uh, I notice I'm the only Canadian on this panel, and uh, I hope I can say something of value to you. Uh, because uh, this is Canada, and because our American friends uh, may not be aware that uh, this is a bilingual country, I would like to say just a few remarks in French for those 40% uh, of the citizens of our country who are French-speaking. Il me fait grand plaisir d'être ici aujourd'hui, et à la part des Canadiens du langue anglaise de... Vous souhaitez bienvenue à Toronto. Moi, je suis de Montréal, mais euh, j'ai passé beaucoup des années à Toronto et je suis sûr que vous trouverez ici un accueil, euh, un accueil euh, magnifique, en effet. Um, I'm happy to see so many people here today. Uh, the, uh, our department... Uh, did a follow-up study last year on alcoholics who had been hospitalized in the Queen Mary Veterans Hospital between 1946 and 1951. And uh, at that time, there were 125 names we came up with. Of those, uh, 25 had deceased. So that uh, if this group is anything like uh, that group, uh, one in five of you would not be here today. So if you look to the two people on either side of you and yourself, uh, were you uh, active alcoholics rather than arrested alcoholics, there's a great possibility that one of you might not be here. Uh, incidentally, the average age of death of these 25 people who died was 51 years of age. So uh, I know perfectly well that you can't scare an alcoholic, but... Uh, uh, if you're subject to being scared, uh, those figures should scare you. Uh, as I say, I'm not entirely sure why I'm here today. Um, I think it uh, stems out of uh, something that happened in Montreal last fall. There was a regional bilingual conference of AA, and I had the honor to be asked to address it. It so happened that uh, just prior to that meeting, this article appeared in the Saturday Evening Post. Those of you at the front can see it. It says, Alcoholics Can Be Cured Despite AA, by Dr. Arthur H. Kane. <coughs> um, at that time, uh, being rather at a loss for a subject, I uh, took Dr. Kane's article and discussed it. Um, in order to, in all fairness uh, to Dr. Kane, I subsequently acquired his book, The Cured Alcoholic, and uh, uh, have recently read it, and uh, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that later. I found the 
Faraday, I, I feel that uh, this is a valid subject for discussion here because Dr. Kane has written in Harper's Magazine, he's written in the Saturday Evening Post, and has written several books. These reach a wide audience, and uh, uh, AA cannot speak as an organization for itself, and I feel that uh, uh, some public comment uh, is a desirable thing. Um, Last night, as I was uh, getting ready for bed, I picked up uh, the Gideon Bible, and uh, in Genesis 5, verses about 2 to 7, it says, uh, And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door." And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. I was a little hesitant to bring the Bible into this discussion, but as one can see, there's a great deal of truth in the Bible, and history does repeat itself. <laughs> I tried to examine my reasons for um, why I felt I should bring this passage, and I think the reason was... Uh, the slaying of Abel by Cain uh, was a violent act. It's an act of great anger. And I think that uh, uh, Dr. Cain's work has aroused great anger. Uh, uh, perhaps there is something in the content of it that, uh, that is angry. Uh, certainly it has aroused anger in a lot of people. And I think uh, the way you have uh, responded here to the mention of this is some indication of this. Um, a lot of his criticism is, to my view, unjustified. He says, Unfortunately, AA has become a dogmatic cult whose chapters too often turn sobriety into slavery to AA. Because of its narrow outlook, Alcoholics Anonymous presents thousands from ever being cured. Uh, I cannot agree with this. Uh, <clears throat> I think the essential point here, as we talk of uh, AA's growing responsibilities, is that AA, there are practically as many kinds of AA, as I have seen it, as there are members. And I think there is a responsibility in a not to be too dogmatic, except about one thing, and uh, to, uh, have the, uh, uh, to have the strength to accept people whose brand of AA is perhaps a little different from your own. I have not visited AA meetings widely across the country, but I've talked to people who have, and I'm told that AA in Chicago is totally different from AA in Montreal, for example, and this is good. Um, we can't leave this article of Dr. Keynes without some reference to the now famous article of Dr. D. L. Davis in 1962. Uh, in uh, the Saturday Evening Post article, Dr. Kane quotes uh, Dr. Davis. Uh, he says, the generally accepted view that no alcohol addict can ever again drink normally should be modified. Now, in his book, Dr. Kane gives the uh, doesn't uh, gives 
the complete text of the Davis article, and he points out the emphatic point that Dr. Davis does make. Uh, it is not denied that the majority of alcohol addicts are incapable of achieving normal drinking. And this is the important sentence to me. Dr. Davis, the man who claimed to have found uh, seven uh, alcoholics out of 93 who could drink normally, Dr. Davis in his article himself says, all patients should be told to aim at total abstinence. And that to me is still the basis of the way I try to treat alcoholics. Um, if what Dr. Kane says is uh, so out of line, why has it aroused so much anger? Um, now, I think he uses, tends to use uh, generalizations and he tends to use somewhat uh, inflammatory statements at times. But I think there is some truth in what he says. And the truth is hidden behind a lot of verbiage. And the truth is this. Sobriety is a challenge. Um, many of you here may have had the experience, and certainly I in practice have seen it a great many times, of uh, sabotage of one's attempts at sobriety. Sabotage can come from many sources. The one that comes most frequently to our attention is sabotage by the spouse. Um, I had a man who used to drink on business trips. He used to take antabuse with him. Uh, he went away on a particularly stressful trip that his wife didn't want him to go on, and she forgot to put the antabuse in his bag. In fact, she actually took it out. He packed it himself. Um, I had a man who uh, uh, was trying very hard to stop. He went shopping with his wife. She sort of accidentally, automatically took a case of beer and put it on the uh, shopping carriage, shopping cart. Um, these things are not entirely accidents. And if you go into it, you discover that, particularly in this one case which sticks very clearly in my mind, the individual was mean, miserable, surly, and a lousy husband when he was sober. <laughs> he was meaner, more miserable, and more lousy and broke when he was drunk. But what his wife hoped for him, before she learned better, was that he could just drink a little bit so he'd be happy. Um, what Cain is driving at, and what I think AA has perhaps neglected somewhat in the past, is this question of growth after sobriety. To my view, sobriety alone is not enough. Uh, I think you recognize this too, and I think you talk of people being on a dry drunk when they're not drinking, but they sort of wish they were. Um, we set about to try and study this uh, question uh, in a relatively scientific manner. And Dr. Negretti, working in our department at the Veterans Hospital, uh, took three groups of patients. He took patients just admitted to hospital who uh, were active drinking alcoholics. He took arrested alcoholics, mostly members of AA. Uh, there is another group in Montreal that has uh, a small number of people who are arrested alcoholics. And he took a normal control group, which was matched with the other two groups for age, sex, religion, and so on. Um, to these two groups, he administered uh, two uh, tests. One was a test called the Moody Problem Index. And this is simply a long checklist of common problems that people have, some 300 of them. Um, and they're divided into certain areas. The 
sexual area, the area of finances, the area of home and family adjustments, and so on. He found, as one would expect, that active alcoholics had many more problems than the other two groups. Um, he found that the arrested alcoholic had many more problems, even after two years of sobriety, than the so-called control group, which may have had alcoholics in it or may not. They were just an unselected group of people. Um, he administered a second test, and this was a test of marital adjustment. It was a marital adjustment scale. And again, he found, as one would expect, that uh, active alcoholics had lousy marital adjustments. But he found that the marital adjustment of arrested alcoholics was less good than that of the so-called normal control group. Um, now this, I think, uh, if we boil it down, is uh, what Dr. Kane is driving at. He says, and I think that we could sum his message up as sobriety alone is not enough. Um, I haven't had wide experience of attendance at AA meetings, but in those I have attended, there has been too little attention, in my view, paid to what happens after sobriety has been achieved. Um, this is not true of the Al-Anon groups. The Al-Anon groups pay a great deal of attention, in my experience, to the adjustments that must be made while the alcoholic is active and after he is arrested. Uh, I remember again uh, in Montreal hearing a, a man, member of Al-Anon, speaking. And... Uh, <laughs> there are just like two eyes looking at me here. <laughs> And this was one of the most inspiring talks I have ever heard. Uh, and he started in in the days of his wife's active alcoholism, uh, but he continued right up to the day of his talking, which was seven years or so later. Um, and I think that part of the increasing responsibility that AA must show is in this area of continuing to help members of the fellowship to develop after they have stopped drinking. My message today really is that sobriety alone is not enough. Thank you very much, Dr. McPherson. I am reminded of an incident early in my contact with Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the earliest members of the uh, Board of Trustees was really what might be called a low-bottom drunk. He came from New York, and he tried the fear method. Now, the fear method he used was every morning... He had contacts in New York. Every morning he was allowed to go to Bellevue, which is the city hospital, and allowed to look at the stiffs that had died the night before from alcoholism. <laughs> I said, how did it work? Well, he said it was all right until about noon, then I had to take a drink to get the pictures out of my mind. <laughs> He also told me another lovely story, which I think can be well repeated. He says, they always talk about the alcoholic using alcoholic to escape from reality. He said, hell, I never could find it. <laughs> Our second speaker is a man who has been touched and restored by AA. 
Here is Dr. John M. from Statesville, Georgia. It is my happy privilege to introduce him to you, Dr. John. Hi, everybody. My name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. And up here, they've got a system of lights. Now, that's why this program runs so good. And I used to be a paratrooper, and they had a little lights by the door, you know, a little red light that came on three minutes before you were supposed to jump. And then they turned on a green light, and if you didn't jump, they pushed you out the door. <coughs> and Beth tells me she's got a hook when this red light comes on. I'm, uh, I'm grateful to be here. And I bring you greetings from the 12-step group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Statesboro, Georgia. They all wanted to come, but they couldn't, I said. And I'm grateful because uh, one thing I feel right now is the is wonderful help we get from these people that you're hearing talk here on this platform, Dr. McPherson and Dr. Tebow and Dr. Block. You know, I, these men volunteered to come here into AA to help us, and they've been doing it for years. They've tried to help the sick, sick alcoholics, and they did it of their own free will. I'm here because I had to be. There was nowhere else to go. <laughs> I'd worn out the doctors and the psychiatrists and everything, and there was nowhere to go. And I feel most inadequate to fill this spot. And that reminds me of a story. <clears throat> Down in uh, South Georgia where I live, uh, there's a big swamp called the Okefenokee Swamp. And on the edge of this swamp, there are two schools that have an intense football rivalry. And they play hard every year. And this particular year, they, neither team had won a game, and it was the last game, and it was the last quarter, and they had about five minutes to go, and one team had the ball first down on the other team's three-yard line. And the coach went down the line, and he yelled over to the quarterback, and he says, Give the ball to Calhoun. And they ignored him, and somebody else carried the ball, and he made no gain. And second down, and the coach got a little more upset, and he says, Give that ball to Calhoun. They still ignored him. Made about a yard. It was third down and two yards to go. And he got a little more upset. And he said, give that ball to Calhoun. They still ignored him. Made a yard. Somebody else carried the ball. It was fourth down, the last down, the last chance to make the touchdown. Had one yard to go. And the coach leaned over. He says, give the ball to Calhoun. And the quarterback turned around and says, Calhoun don't want the damn ball. <laughs> <laughs> I took my first drink of alcohol when I was 18 years old, and I did it on impulse. I was a student at Emory University in Atlanta taking pre-medical work. I eventually became a physician. You wouldn't believe it from what I learned about alcoholism about myself because I couldn't stay sober in spite of my medical degree. I, uh, I don't know why I took this drink. Now, I had been, uh, I guess you might call a model child. I, had a, I was brought up in a home where people did not drink. It was a church-going home. I was a Methodist, Protestant, and they, uh, uh, they, I don't know whether they taught me or whether I just got the idea that decent people didn't drink, and I was opposed to it. I was a prohibitionist. And so suddenly one night when I took this drink, uh, it shocked everybody. And before that, I had believed that people who did not drink, uh, rather people who drank, uh, really had no reason for it, that there was nothing that they could get out of a bottle. But once I got this first drink, I couldn't see why everybody didn't drink. Uh, I heard a speaker yesterday afternoon say the trouble with trouble that starts is fun. And, you know, that's the way it was with me. It was a, a, wonderful, a wonderful feeling that I had. Gosh, I got on this stuff and I got drunk that night and they poured me in my bed and I swore off the next morning. I was an alcoholic from the first drink. I swore off for about six months or so and I tried it again and I got drunk again. I said, this stuff is wonderful, but you've got to control it. You can't drink all you want. And from then on, I entered on a long period of controlled drinking. And to me, alcoholism is controlled drinking. I did it through willpower. I, uh, I would cut it off at night when it was time to go to bed. I would eat some eggs and some chocolate milkshake because I had to work the next day. And I did this very effectively for a long time. My alcoholism is a story of a gradual loss of control, and which means loss of willpower, so that when I came to AA, I had used up all my willpower. There wasn't any left. 
and uh, I had lost control completely. I had switched from the alcohol to the drugs. I went through medical school. I got married, and uh, I uh, picked a very lovely girl. I think anybody who is going to be the most prominent doctor in Georgia certainly needed a, a society girl, and I got one. And we were in love, I think, and we stayed married a long time. And I left her, and I went overseas. And then when uh, I came back, I was drinking heavily, but something had happened to this girl. Now, she no longer was the person that I thought she was when I married her. She developed resentment. She was on the telephone all the time talking to her mother about my drinking. And I, I could not see why she continued to be attached to her mother so much when, when the marriage ceremony said forsaking all others, you know. She should have been coming to me with her problems, but she wasn't doing this. And I beat her up a few times and it didn't help her. <laughs> This girl, this girl finally left me and we got a divorce and I haven't seen her since. She was a wonderful girl, but I learned a lesson from her. I never did mistreat my present wife quite that badly, I don't think. But I knew, I knew then a woman would leave you. I didn't think they would leave a nice guy like me, but she did. I got married again to Dot, who's here with me now, and uh, we've been in AA together for some little time. Six years, as a matter of fact, tomorrow morning. Tomorrow is my birthday, July the 4th. And... And I got married to Dot. We started trying to make this thing together. Now, I don't like a doctor who drinks treating me. And I didn't... Uh... <laughs> I, I deep down didn't believe that maybe I ought to be drinking. And so I began to go into a very convenient little uh, accessory that every doctor has. Two of them, as a matter of fact. One is his little black bag and his little narcotic... Uh, prescription privilege, and the other is this sample cabinet, and the drug houses just keep this thing full of the most wonderful medicines you ever saw. It's beautiful, all different kind of colors, and, and uh, most of it habit forming. <laughs> I started going into this thing because, see, when I'd wake up in the morning and I had to have that drink and I couldn't take it, I'd have to take something else. I found a substitute, and I started taking codeine, and I took this codeine in increasing amounts because you must increase a narcotic once you start it. I ran into something that uh, is characteristic of drugs that I know now that I don't think I really understood at the time, and that is there's no such thing as a drug that will do just what it's supposed to do and nothing else. Every drug has a side effect. I don't care what it is. Every one of them has a side effect. And as I took this codeine, it relieved my hangover beautifully, but it began to make me nauseated, see? So I took bromunil and barbital for my nausea. <laughs> this, too, has a side effect, and... I began to get sleepy from it, so I took Benzedrine to wake me up. <laughs> this made me nervous, so I took Nimbutel to calm me down. <laughs> this was a terrific, terrific thing. We, we doctors call this treating yourself symptomatically, and I did a good job of it. <laughs> I, I treated myself symptomatically. Every little ache and pain, I had a different pill. And I kept taking so much of this stuff until one night I had a convulsion. And uh, I didn't know what caused it. They all thought I had a brain tumor because you don't go telling people about this self-medication process you're going in. And uh, I wound up in a hospital and uh, fractured a vertebra in this thing. And then I eventually made my first uh, uh, real, I think, serious thought of suicide. I had left this hospital and gone down to Florida to uh, sort of rest up a little bit and convalesce for a month or so so I could go back and stay sober the rest of my life, you know. I got down there. And I ran out of dope. I was taking codeine, and I started drinking. And I drank so much one night that I decided that I would swim across the Gulf of Mexico. And I made it about ten yards out, and I got tired, and I got thirsty, and I came back for another drink. <laughs> and I passed out, and I came to, really, uh, several days later, I, it was sort of hazy to me what happened, in a psychiatric hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, I had read somewhere that alcoholism, that the excessive drinking and alcoholism is a symptom of a serious underlying nervous or emotional disorder or mental disorder. And I reasoned that if I could find out what this disorder was and I could correct it, that I wouldn't have to drink so much. And so I started going to see psychiatrists and I went to see many of them. I went to North Carolina, I went to Atlanta, I went to Florida, I went to New Canaan, Connecticut to see Dr. Tahoon, who had an article last uh, month in The Wonderful Man tell you something else about him in a minute. But I went to New York to places, always with the same result. 
On this trip to Silver Hill, Connecticut, something big happened to me, but I did not recognize it. They told me there that I was an alco- that I had an alcohol problem, and he may have told me I was an alcoholic. I, d- I didn't listen to it if he did. He told me that I should get on a balanced life, which I knew I should have. He says you're disorganized, and there's no question about it. When a doctor's making rounds on his patients at 3 o'clock in the morning and waking them up to ask them how they feel, <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's disorganized. And he asked me to get on a routine of living, which, uh, which I think was, was, uh, was excellent. But one of the things he gave me was a big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, to read. And this was my first contact with AA. This was in 1953. And he said, read this. It may help you. And I read it. And I said, this is a wonderful book for the alcoholic. When I get back, I'm going to send all my alcoholic patients to this fellowship. Now, there's one story in there that's just like mine, a doctor's story very much like mine. But I saw none of this in myself. I came back on this psychiatric routine. I was still seething with resentments. I was, uh, I, I was not getting uh, my patients back as rapidly as I thought uh, I should, and I was blaming this on the other doctors because they were talking about me, you know, this sort of deal. And yet I got along. I stayed, uh, I stayed on food and water. I didn't take any pills or any alcohol or anything. I realized, I think, about this time that I did have an addictive personality. That means that I can get hooked on an empty capsule if you told me it'd make me feel better, see. And I, I knew I had to leave it off uh, then, and I did. But this was an incomplete program. There was no spiritual support. There was no real self-understanding in it at all. One day on this routine of exercise I had, I went out to play golf, and I caught this index finger in the car door, and I slammed it, and I broke it. And I came in that night, and it was hurting, hurting real bad. I said, Dot, uh, I read somewhere, and I knew I was a narcotic addict, and I didn't know really I was an alcoholic then, I don't think, but I knew I was a narcotic addict. I said, I read somewhere. I always read the stuff, you know. The, uh, I read somewhere that a recovered alcoholic who had been successfully rehabilitated could take narcotics uh, in case of an emergency, providing it was administered under the direction of a physician. I am a physician. I will prescribe for myself 100 milligrams of Demerol, and I took it. It was five years before I was off everything completely. I went from one place to another. I don't know then that I ever really uh, thought that I had an alcohol problem. I knew I had a narcotic problem. I was so mixed up from tranquilizers and sedatives and other things that my mind couldn't work clear any way you look at it. I could take Equinil, uh, these other tranquilizers that were available then, and I wouldn't need to drink so much. I could take alcohol and leave it. I could drink a half a can of beer and set it down. It broke up the compulsive pattern of drinking, and this confused me because I was able to, to, to convince myself that, gosh, alcohol is not a real problem. It's this other stuff, and I set out to stay off of it. It wasn't until I came to AA and really took an inventory and saw that every time that I got on this other stuff, it started from drinking, that drinking was the basis of it, that when I had been in hospitals many places to get off narcotics or the other things, that I always put that little reservation about the alcohol in there, and I drank often when I was under psychiatric care and never bothered to tell the psychiatrist about it, see. (laughs) Things got worse with me. I got real bad off, and along in the spring of 1959, I got on Demerol, Demerol real bad. And I I think I began to get something then that could could get through to me a little bit, get me some help. I think I got a desire for something better. I don't think I got a desire to stay sober, a desire to stop drinking or taking dope or anything. I got sick and tired of living the way I was. I was uh, 49 years old. I'd been practicing medicine since 1937. I had nothing. I'd lost one family. I was heavily in debt. Uh, I had practically no patients left that were uh, making no money out of it anyway. I, I was in an in a awful condition, and I wanted something better. And I told Dot that I have sent many of my patients to the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm going up there, too, because I need to go. I, got a, I had a little white Thunderbird then that I rode around in, a little convertible. And a little white hat I used to wear with this Thunderbird. See, I rode around in this convertible all the time because when you're on this dope, you get pale. And if you ride around in enough sunshine, sometimes you'll get a little color, see? And I was conscious of this thing. And so I rode around sometimes even when it was raining, see? But I didn't. But I started out from Kentucky for Kentucky, and I had a little dope with me, and I had to get some more before I'd go on 50 miles from a doctor friend of mine. I had 
long since gotten to the point where they wouldn't let me have any narcotics in Statesboro. I had to go to Savannah. I had to put up all these fictitious uh, people and, and relatives, and then I had to, uh, all types of violations of the Harrison narcotic law to get myself dope, see, and write these prescriptions and drawing on on uh, the, the goodwill of other people and, and uh, deceiving them in order to get myself something to take. And I started off on this thing. And I got up there, and I went in, and I, I said, I'm going to stay about a year. Well, I went in this hospital, and I'd read these little brochures. I don't know whether you've ever been there or not, any of you, but uh, the brochures look real good. It's a beautiful building out on the countryside of Kentucky there in the bluegrass region, and the, it's, it's a lovely building. And uh, I had visions of, of the of this place. I had been told that they had prisoners there, but I thought they had the prisoners over here and all these bars, you know. And then they had the little, uh, the volunteers, which is what I was, over here in little cottages with nurses where they were going to look after you, you know, especially me, a doctor, that would get special privileges. I always did. But I went in this place, and they had them all there together. And they gave everybody a number. And they gave me number 55280, and this hurt. If they'd have called me Dr. 55280, I think I'd have felt better. <laughs> but they didn't do that. And they put Dr. Mooney in there with a bunch of common dope fiends. And this I didn't like. Oh, and I got to looking at that thing and I said, Brother, this has done you good. This is shock treatment. This is what's going to happen to you if you keep on messing with this stuff. And I realized then that I had a narcotic and alcohol problem and I had to stay off of dope and alcohol the rest of my life or I was going to be in there. And I swore off. And I said, I'll never touch it again. And when you swear off, there ain't no point in staying a year. I might as well go on then, see. So I signed out of this place. <laughs> and I got my little Thunderbird back and I started back to Georgia. And uh, I was riding down Tennessee and I had made this decision never to drink again. I was coming down US 25 toward Knoxville. And I said, never again. And you know, I was happy with this because I was sincere. I had really made this decision not to drink anymore, and I felt real good about it. I came to a sign and said, last chance to buy whiskey before Knoxville. Knoxville was dry then. <laughs> and I got to thinking, just because I'm going to quit doesn't mean that everybody else has got to quit. I've got a friend named Jim that lives in Gatlinsburg, Tennessee. I want to spend the night with Jim. Jim likes a drink. I'll stop and buy him a little bottle just as a little favor for Jim. So I bought two-fifths of Canadian Club. I got back in the car, and I remembered that Jim had moved from... Uh, <laughs> Tennessee <laughs> to South Carolina two years before, but I'm stuck with the liquor. What do I do? Take it back? No, I save it for my other friends. So I get on to uh, a little hamburger joint in Knoxville, and I got to thinking about this business of staying sober the rest of your life. You know, that's a long time. And anybody that's, that's really sworn off, that doesn't intend to ever drink again, surely it's all right to take a few drinks today. I'm way up in Tennessee. So I, I started drinking. Well, I drank that night. And I got to Gatlinsburg, and I wound up the next day in the Gatlinsburg jail. I got locked up in three states trying to get back to Georgia. I couldn't get away from the... <laughs> I couldn't get away from the liquor. This thing got through to me. One big point about my recovery, I think, was... See, I was alone on this trip, just me and the bottle and the Thunderbird, and I couldn't keep out of trouble. And it dawned on me that other people had been looking after me. I had been protected from my own disease... And the consequences of my own disease, I'd rather, I'd rather say. On this trip to New Canaan, Connecticut, it's a thousand-mile trip up there nearly, and I went in an ambulance with a special nurse, see? And uh, nothing gets through to me. I think that I'm looking after myself when I'm not. Other people are looking after me. When I got this, uh, this trip, it got through to me that when I wasn't even able, within my own power, while under the influence of this stuff, to drive down the road without getting in trouble. I came back and I found myself in bad trouble. Uh... First of all, I got drunk at home, and they put me out, and I finally wound up in a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, is uh, as miserable and sick as I'd been up to then. And uh, in the meantime, they had picked up some of these little prescriptions that I'd put around, and they had, light, had warrants out for my arrest. And about 2 o'clock in the morning of July the 4th, 1959, the officers walked in and arrested me and on these charges, and I had about a third of a bottle of Canadian Club left. And I said, can I take a drink? And they said, yes. Where you going? You're not going to get one. So I took a drink, and that was my last drink. And you know what's an interesting thing about this? I quit drinking a thousand times. Every time I got drunk, I quit. Every time I came out of one of these psychiatric hospitals, I quit drinking, taking dope, never again. This time, I did not quit. I didn't know what kind of trouble I was in. But I said, whatever it is, told myself this, when I get through, I'm coming back and finish that bottle of alcohol, because that bottle of Canadian Club. 
But I was locked up for five months after that. And during that period, I met this Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and found out I didn't have to quit, that all you have to do is stay away from it one day at a time. I went back to Georgia, and I stood in the little courthouse in Statesboro where I've lived all my life, listened to myself there, just listened to the judge read the indictment of the grand jury, and I pled guilty to the charge of illegal possession of Demerol, uh, one bottle. I pled guilty to that charge because if it looked further, they'd have found a thousand. They, he sentenced me to two years at the Reedsville State Prison. And he turned to me and says, John, I don't think you're a criminal. I think you're sick. And I'm going to probate this sentence, providing you'll go back to Lexington, Kentucky, and stay there until these doctors release you. I went back to Lexington, and I thanked him because I know that uh, I, I knew that's what I needed. I needed treatment more than I did a prison term then, I think. And I got a break when I was on the bottom, too. And I think that's important for the alcoholic, that we get a break when we're ready for it. I, I went back up there, and I didn't go in a Thunderbird. I went in an airplane with a deputy sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> and he informed me that if I tried to leave before those doctors released me, that he was going to come up there and get me and put me in that reasonable prison. And I didn't like that. I went back to AA, or rather back to this hospital, and I went back to the people that I thought could help me more than any others, and that was a psychiatrist. They had worked hard with me and I applied for psychiatric treatment. They gave me three hours of interviews and told me unless I was willing to stay longer than the six months that it was going to take to do this, uh, to complete this, uh, satisfy this court, that they would not undertake to treat me. It would take one, two, three years. They didn't know that I needed a complete analysis. And I turned it down. I turned it down because I think of a little streak of honesty. I knew, I knew that after I'd been there a while and after I got to feeling better and my blood got to circulating again, see, and I could walk and climb a flight of stairs, that I was coming out of this place. I wasn't going to stay. And I knew that I might be in worse condition than I was if I broke this up too soon, so I turned it down and he said, if you won't take our treatment, you had better go to AA and brother, you better put yourself in that program because there's nowhere else to go. They assigned me a job as editor of the little AA paper in there. AA fell on me. It smothered me in this place. I could not dodge it. And I started working it. I'd never went looking for AA. I came into this thing and AA was literally thrust upon me in my stupidity, in my ego, in this uh, uh, terrible shell that I had around myself. I don't think I could have gotten it any other way. You had to come and give it to me and force it there. I started going and I started uh, working the program as best I could in there and I started studying the 12 steps and I began to take an inventory and began to look at the first step as to what was powerlessness. And uh, I began to see that I couldn't imagine having any fun or really being relaxed without alcohol or dope. And to me, this meant powerlessness. If I've got to depend on this drug, alcohol or some other drug, for serenity, for happiness, for peace of mind, for fun, then, uh, then surely I'm powerless over this thing. Some, there must be some other answer to it. I was standing up there one day by the, in the ward looking out through the bars at a herd of Angus cattle that they had there. And these cattle were loose. They were wandering around this field, and there was a little fence that any one of them could have pushed over. And I got to thinking, here these cows are that are going to be slaughtered, are running around loose, and they got Mooney with all his college degrees locked up. What gives? Why is this? What's wrong? And all I could do, I sought through that in my mind to try to see why I was there. And the only thing I could come up with was that if I hadn't been drinking liquor and shooting dope, I wouldn't have been there. And I began to look at the importance of the drug on what had happened to me. There are plenty of people, I realize, who are emotionally disturbed, who are psychoneurotics, all of which I had been called, that don't go around staying drunk all the time like I did. See, they find other solutions. The trouble was with my solution, not with the problem. Whatever the problem, my solution was to run away, to hide in a drug, in some type of drug. I stayed in there for a while and I began to look at myself and I could see as I think anyone will who takes an inventory, I was much worse off than I thought I was. Much worse off. As the time came to leave, I got shook up because I knew I had to stay off of this stuff to live and I could not see how, how I could do it. Could not see any way out of it. And I think God comes to see us at times like this and sends us something we need. See, I had been going to AA in an institution. You can't get any liquor, dope in an institution much anyway. We had been using AA for everything except to stay sober. My sponsor from Frankfort, Kentucky, Houston S., arranged for two of us to go to an outside meeting at the downtown group there, the Token Club in Lexington, Kentucky, which was my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I walked into this meeting, and I saw those people there. My first impression was they're all on something. They're all on dope or something like that. 
I, I couldn't imagine people being that happy without something, and I soon found out they had nothing. They were, they were, were, they had some type of feeling, some type of support that was foreign to me. I did not know what it was. But they communicated the idea to me that they did have something, and if I wanted it, I could have it too. And I came out of there with a feeling there was something in AA that I could have if I wanted it bad enough. It gave me hope. And I think to me, this was a second step where I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I came out of there and I went back to that thing with this big idea of something, uh, there being a way out, knowing that uh, I was going to die if I drank again, and knowing that I could not keep from drinking. This was a terrible dilemma, and yet there was some answer. Uh, the, the next... Uh, day, I caught an airplane to go to Atlanta, and when the time came to leave, to change planes in Atlanta, I was unable to climb up the steps, physically unable to go. I found myself in a motel room that night as sick and miserable as I've ever been, terrified, wanting to die, when I had nowhere else to go. I got down on my knees and I prayed to God to do something for me. I didn't know what I wanted or anything. I didn't have any faith or hope that God would help me. But I think I had something I've never had before. I think I had humility. This terrible feeling went away instantly, and it's never come back. I came back, and I got in AA. I found out that I had to, uh, that I had to live this program one day at a time, that God would help me if I would let him. I found out that I had been using drugs as a substitute for God, that I had put my faith in alcohol. I've been living on food and water ever since. And this fellowship, your love, this wonderful compassion, this wonderful feeling that you have for me that I know that I can feel has kept me going for six years now. It's not very long, but this is the longest I've ever stayed sober. I don't have the need to drink anymore. I don't have the need to pill, to, to take pills or narcotics. To me, life has become beautiful through this fellowship. Our family is together. Our children are coming in Alateens, and my wife is in here too. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to you and for the redeeming power of Almighty God as to reveal to me through this fellowship that keeps me sober today. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you very much for that stirring talk. At my first... AA meeting in St. Louis, there was another doctor who spoke with equal eloquence. I don't know why it is that AA speakers are able to move us so much, but I'm sure it's because they've been through something which has been deeply meaningful to them.